Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We are coming to the conclusion of our study of the Ten Commandments. The song we sang speaks of being thankful, which is the heart of gratitude that is the solution to what we're going to consider today in this command. Exodus chapter 20, if you're using the Bibles there in the chairs, it's on page 52. There was an old Quaker farmer who decided that he could help teach his neighbors a valuable lesson. So he put a sign on a a parcel of property that he owned and it read this, I will give this lot to anyone who is really satisfied. Well, there was a wealthy farmer that saw the sign and he decided that if the Quaker was giving land away, he was the one who could get it and he might as well have it. And since he was rich and really had all that he needed, he could fit the bill of being satisfied. So he approached the Quaker and he explained why he'd come. And the Quaker asked him, well, are you really satisfied? And he said, I sure am. I have all that I need. I am well satisfied. And he said, well, then, friend, if you're satisfied, why do you need my lot? The question revealed that he really wanted more. And the last commandment, the tenth command, goes to the issue of a covetous heart. The the farmer was pointing out the, the highlight that this man really was not content. We want to consider this commandment of honoring contentment. It's a difficult thing in our culture. We, we're familiar with this command, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. And we'll look at it in just a few moments. But the word covet is not one that we use very often. I mean, when is the last time you rebuked one of your children for coveting? When is the per- last time you personally felt convicted for covetousness? And, and rather than simply being tacked on as, well, okay, there's nine commands and the, the law really needs to be balanced, so ten, so the two tablets of stone will, will be symmetrical. No, this command actually is slamming the door shut. It really is pulling things together. It, it deals with the root issue and it can be traced back through a number of the other commandments. It deals with attitude not merely action. And what I want us to see from this commandment this morning is that when you have trusted the Lord, His presence and provision provide your contentment. That if you have truly trusted the Lord, there ought to be that spirit of contentment and realizing that He will provide. If you have your Bibles open, follow with me. We're going to read the really the second portion of the commandments as, as when Jesus summed up the Ten Commandments, He said, the, the greatest commandment is the, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. So let's read these dealing with our neighbor. Beginning in verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. This 10th commandment reverses the pattern of what we've seen in the other nine. The other nine commandments actually start with the external action, and then we've considered the internal attitude and motivation. They work their ways into our lives from the external. The 10th commandment does it the other way. It starts with the inside. It focuses not on what we do, but on what we want, what we desire. Because we can't see if somebody is coveting in their heart. But this commandment makes it clear that God does see. And he judges the heart. So, first of all, what, what is covetousness? How is it described? How, do, how would we describe covetousness? And there, there's a number of things that we consider, but the first thing I want us to see is that, that covetousness is really an inordinate desire. It's not wrong to have desires. It's not wrong to want a house, a spouse, and in that day to have servants. We, we have machines that often do the serving for us. That servants would cook food, wash clothes, run errands, and, and we order online and have machines that do these things for us. That's not wrong, but it is wrong to desire your neighbors. So it's, it's, coveting is not about having desires. It's, it's about what motivates us. I mean, desires actually do motivate us. We're instructed to desire God's Word more than gold or necessary food. So coveting is about improper, inordinate desires. It's about wanting what somebody else has and being dissatisfied with what we have. In fact, it's interesting because I've given you on the slide Deuteronomy 5.21 where we see this verse again and you notice how many times it refers to one's neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So seven times in Exodus 20, eight times here in Deuteronomy 5, we find the reference to one's neighbor, both in the pronouns and the direct statement. So what does it mean to covet? It's to crave something that belongs to somebody else. It's to set your heart on what is not rightfully yours. You know, it's looking over our neighbor's wall and, and desiring what he has. Well, he's got a nicer house, a nicer spouse, nicer servants, nicer, nicer pool, whatever it is, his transportation. You know, for us, it'd be, well, he's got the new iPhone. He's got a better computer gaming system. Or we look into his garage. Well, I like his car better than mine. This past week, a young man that was in my youth group when I was a youth pastor posted on social media that he had taken delivery of his new car. He had waited 18 months for this car. It's a special 70th edition, anniversary edition of the Corvette Coupe. And he had to go to a different state to pick it up. I, I took out his name, so you don't have to go looking for him on Facebook. Um, but this was, a, and, and I saw this car, I thought, you know, of course that was a car I really did like when I was in high school. Now, how I responded in my spirit would be determining whether or not I was violating this commandment. If I said, well, I want that car. Actually, I was thrilled for him. 
I, because I, I knew you know, enough of his background and he had written up of how he had been interested in Corvettes going back to when he was a kid. His dad worked in the auto industry and would sometimes bring one home that he was just driving for the company. And, he got to, and so he had gotten a very, very interested in this. And now with the 70th anniversary edition coming out, and it comes in two colors, and, and his was the pearl, the white pearl. Well, I was happy for him. But covetousness is an attitude of discontent. And that's the second thing that we see. It's it's not only an inordinate desire that I want what somebody else has, it's an attitude that I'm not satisfied with what God has given me. Mentioned in this command actually deals with the inner disposition rather than the outward demonstration. And so in in Numbers chapter 11, it doesn't mean that that what we desire is wrong, it's, it's out of place. In Numbers 11, in verse 4, it says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them, this is after Israel's come out of Egypt, yielded to an intense craving. So the children of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? And if you're familiar with the story, they've come out. God has provided manna that they can eat, and Israel's complaining. And and when you read it, and, and they said, Oh, if only we could be back in Egypt. Because there we had fish and cucumbers and onions and garlic. Now, I like those things, but I'm not going to weep over not having them. You know, maybe Boston cream donuts or cheesecake, that might be different. But this, this is their attitude. They're crying. Oh, they said, only if we could go back to slavery. That's what they've been delivered from. And they're eating manna, which in Psalm 78, verse 25, is referred to as angel's food. So we don't want angel's food. We want to go back to Egypt. You know, I I shake my head when I read that, but don't we have the same thing? And so God sends meat. He sends quail. and, And yet His wrath was kindled against them because of their discontent and their attitude. And God struck them with a deadly plague. And it says in Numbers 11, verse 34, there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. Now, what they craved in and of itself was not sin. Fish is not sin. Vegetables, melon, these things, that that is not wrong. But their inordinate desire and their attitude of discontent brought upon them the wrath of God and the plague of God. See, discontent or contentment is really about your, dis, your disposition more than your position. That God was meeting their needs. He was providing, but they weren't satisfied. In fact, one commentary noted that this commandment to not covet really appears to be a summary of at least the previous three. That you shall not commit adultery. Well, it was coveting somebody else's wife that caused David when he looked over the wall to say, I want to spend a night with that woman. Proverbs 6.25 says, do not lust after her beauty. It was coveting property that caused King Ahab in 1 Kings 21 to look at his neighbor's field and say, I want that. He wanted the vineyard of a man named Naboth. And he went to him and said, sell me your field. And Naboth said, I can't do that because Naboth knew the law and he wasn't to transfer the family property. And and so Naboth won't give it to him and Ahab goes home and pouts like a little child. 
I mean, listen to what it says in 1 Kings 21, verse 4. So Ahab went into his house, sullen and displeased. He's angry and depressed. Because the word of which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and wouldn't eat no food. I mean, he goes to his room and sulks. He lays down and looks at the wall and he pouts. And his wife comes in and says, what's wrong? He says, nothing. (laughs) What he really says is, Naboth won't give me his property. And Jezebel was a wicked woman. She said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And so she finds false witnesses who will violate the ninth commandment and bear false witness against Naboth, claim that he blasphemed God and the king. He ends up being executed based on these false charges. And then Ahab takes his property. So they violated the ninth commandment and the sixth commandment of committing murder. And Elijah comes to him and says, you are going to die for this. But it was a hard attitude. And that's the third thing that we see. Covetousness is a heart issue. It wasn't that Ahab needed property, but he wanted that property. Psalm 119, 36 says, Incline incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Which way is our heart leaning? Where are we inclined I mean, where could we see this? You know, if we, if we were to take a church field trip today, we could all easily see this heart issue. And we wouldn't have to go to the Chandler Fashion Center or the, the Scottsdale Mall. We'd just have to walk out these doors, go down the hall, and go to the nursery. And we could find a child happily playing with a toy until he sees another child playing with a toy that he wants. And what happens? In no time, there would be wars and fightings among them. Because he wants what somebody else has. That's the heart of covetousness. So how do we see this displayed in Scripture? And that's what I want us to see secondly. How is covetousness displayed? In the New Testament, there's a very clear example of this heart issue. We find it in three Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I've given you the chapters there, Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 18. You don't need to turn there. But we find an encounter that takes place, and it's really, it's toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's leaving the Galilean area. He crosses over the Jordan River. He, He goes east into the Beyond Jordan region, as Scripture refers to it. And and he's making his way down, and as he he's teaching as he goes. They're bringing children to him, and he says, Bring, allow the children to come to me. And and then there's a man that appears to him, and and we're very familiar with the story. In fact, my concern, if you've been in church very long, we're so familiar with the story that we actually miss the, the punch of the story. We miss the impact of the situation. Because three Gospels record this. So let me read you the compilation of this story from those three Gospels. Let me piece together the account that we find. It says this, And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, behold, a man, a ruler, ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? You know the commandments. Do not murder. 
Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you still lack. If you would be perfect, go. Sell all you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he became very sad and went away sorrowful, for he was extremely rich, for he had great possessions. You know, this young man was the epitome of success in our day. And, and while in our culture it wouldn't be culturally acceptable to run up to somebody and fall at their feet, he was intelligent, he was articulate, he was respectful, and he was religious. He was responsible. He had a managerial position. He was a ruler. And his question, we would hear this question and say, this is an amazing opportunity for evangelism. I mean, how many people come up and say, can you tell me what I have to do to inherit eternal life? That's what he asked. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, most people aren't asking such obvious religious questions. They tend to be much more focused in their questions. You know, how do I fix my problems? You know, how do I get out of debt? How do, how do I have a better marriage? How do I have a marriage? How do, I, how do I have obedient children? How can I feel better about myself? This man knew something wasn't right. Something was missing. And, and what str- is striking is the abruptness of Jesus' response. In Matthew 19, verses 18 and 19, he immediately redefines the terms. He says, why do you call me good? Like, well, that's kind of a strange way to answer the question, how do you inherit eternal life? But what Jesus was doing was clarifying there's a difference between human opinion and the Word of God. That Christ is preparing the way that his answer is going to be not mere information, but it's authoritative. And it's going to carry much more weight than this man cares to accept. You see, this this man wanted to remodel his life. Jesus wants to revolutionize it. The man was open to suggestions, but, but God's word is definitive. It's not merely an advice column that we read someplace or a therapy session. It's the authoritative Word of God. It is God breathed out. And Christ is drawing that line in the sand. And then He draws His attention to the Ten Commandments and to the second tablet, the the second half, dealing with man's relationship with others. And, And He's dealing with them at the human level. He says, don't murder Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. That was the fifth commandment. So we went six, seven, eight, nine, five, and then love your neighbor as yourself. In Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Well, the man's not convicted at this point. He assumes he's righteous. There's no conviction. He says, you know, I've checked all those boxes. I've done it since I was a young person. And notice what Jesus didn't mention, the Tenth Commandment. It goes to the heart. He went through the list of do's. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. He said, I'm good. And now the Lord confronts him with the real heart issue, what he truly values. See, Jesus didn't accommodate the gospel to this man's expectation. 
He didn't appeal to his success or self-esteem, said, man, you've done good. He, he wasn't appealing to the consumer mentality that is so prevalent in our day. And all three Gospels save for the very end of the story what we unfortunately put right at the beginning. We refer to him as the rich young ruler. And the Bible doesn't tell us that till the very last statement in each one. It holds that important piece of information about his financial status till the very end. Note how these three passages conclude. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's the Matthew passage. And he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions in Mark 10. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. He was willing to serve God in addition to what he had, but not in sacrifice to what he had. He was healthy, wealthy, powerful. He had a good position, a good portfolio. He had his retirement plan. He was a mover and shaker. And Jesus offers him treasure in heaven, and it wasn't enough. Treasure on earth held much more power over his life than treasure in heaven. Sell all you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and follow me. You will have me as well. But he loved his stuff more than he loved the Savior. And that's the example we find in Scripture. It goes to the heart issue and the danger of that. And that's the third thing I want to see is, what is the danger of covetousness? See, covetousness tends to be a gateway sin. It opens the door to other sins. James 4 says, where do wars and fightings come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and have not. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. That you can spend it on your own pleasures. You have selfish reasons for why you're asking. You know, I've already mentioned that this sin can really be the impetus to other internal problems and other sins. It it violates on so many levels. But let's go back to our field trip to the nursery. You know, we could very quickly see that covetous heart turn from, from covetousness into stealing into a war. And the truth is, if the participants were bigger and there wasn't adult supervision... It could escalate to murder. As they start hitting and taking and hitting, and, and, and what we see is the heart problems. The first and final commandments actually deal with the same heart issue. You shall have no other gods before me. The rich young ruler, as we know him, showed that he had a God before Christ because he was very rich. And coveting is desiring something other than God. And it betrays a loss of contentment with His presence and provision. And so we need to see not only is it a gateway sin, but covetousness fails to satisfy. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says to them, Take heed, beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of things that he possesses. That sounds so un-American. As, as we heard this week at the missions conference of the amount of money that's spent just on storage units. 
because our houses are full and our garage are, garages are packed. But your life doesn't consist of, of stuff. John D. Rockefeller, founder of Standard Oil, was considered the wealthiest American of all time, and he was asked once, how much money is enough? And he answered, just a little bit more. That there's never the true satisfaction. Ecclesiastes 3.10 says, he who loves silver or money will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with income or increase. This also is vanity. It's chasing the wind. Covetousness fails to satisfy. Covetousness doesn't bring fulfillment in this life, and it will abandon you at death. Let me have you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We read in, uh, our scripture reading was in chapter 5 this morning, but turn to chapter 6 with me. Familiar passage to many of us. You may have heard these verses before, but, but I want us to see a couple of things. And I'll have a couple of the verses on the screen in a few moments, but I, I didn't put them all up there. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, look at verse 7. It says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. The man who died and somebody asked one of his friends, well, how much did he leave behind? The answer was everything. House, garage, storage unit, left it all. And what we leave behind when we die, it might buy a fancy coffin and an impressive stone, but when you're lowered into the earth, you're not going to want somebody else's plot or monument. It's going, covetousness will not satisfy. And more than that, covetousness stifles spiritual life. And that's the great danger. The Pharisees were covetous men. In Luke chapter 11, verse 39, Jesus told them that inside they were full of greed and wickedness. Jesus told a parable about the soils and the receptiveness to the Word of God, and He talks about the seed of the Word being spread, and what makes a difference is the receptiveness of the soil. And He says this, and He says, Now when He who received the seed among the thorns, He is who hears the Word, And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. That's Matthew 13, 22. The seed fell among thorns. What were the thorns? The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. That somehow that will satisfy. And so we see this. Now now look at 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into the temptation and snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now now notice what it doesn't say. This verse is often misquoted especially by unsaved people who want to kind of blast churches for asking for money. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the heart desire, the love of money, is the root of all kinds of evil. The issue is motivation. It's the heart that seeks contentment in money, in riches, rather than being satisfied in Christ. And a heart that's going after things is going to produce all sorts of evil. Do we really understand, though, that covetousness can ruin your spiritual eternity? 
That's what the passage tells us. You know, if you were to stand before God today, what would you bring? Would it be a wallet that is full of contentment with Christ? That vault that you have been satisfied with the beauty that He has provided and how He has met needs? Or would you stand with this giant spiritual hole, an empty piggy bank, because all your worldly desires had been stashed there and now they're gone? You know, if you're taking greater pains to gain this world than to strive for investing in eternity, that's a concern. And rather than view covetousness as a minor sin that's kind of tacked on to to give us an even 10, we need to realize the heart of covetousness really is what reveals our inward sinfulness. This rich young ruler thought he was good when it was don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness and honor your parents. He said, I got it. But when it went to the heart, that's when he turned away. You know, the Ten Commandments were not given as an achievable standard, saying if you can get this to this bar, you've got it. And when we focus on the external behavior, well, I haven't murdered anybody, we're not much different than the rich young ruler. Because we can justify ourselves. But this 10th commandment pulls back the curtain on our sinful hearts, our covetous spirits. And that's what reveals that we need a Savior. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7 says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, You shall not covet. And verse 8, but sin takes, taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desires. You know, it's when we're told we can't do something that our flesh rises up. And Paul is saying the law actually reveals our sinfulness. And it's that inward command, because we look at, well, I'm not, I don't steal, I don't lie, I don't murder, I'm good. But what do we really desire? The law reveals our sin problem. That's why as we've gone through, I, I, I don't know about you, but I found every one of these commandments convicting. Because we've looked at the heart issues, the problems behind it, not simply, oh, yeah, I, I, I don't bow down to graven images. I'm good there. But do I really desire and love God as He has revealed Himself? And what we need to understand is the law was given at Mount Sinai. It can only be satisfied at Mount Calvary. Only Jesus can fulfill the righteousness that is demanded by the law. And only Jesus can satisfy the cravings of the heart. And so the law was given as a teacher to direct Israel to the coming Messiah. And that's what it's for for us as well. That it will instruct us and help us see areas where where we fall short of the glory of God and the wages of that sin is death. So have you ever trusted Him personally as your Lord and Savior? Is there that heart relationship with Jesus Christ? Because if not, what I'm about to say of how do we defeat covetousness is is not going to be a to-do list of how to be moral. It ought to direct us to Christ as the one who satisfies. It's not a path for self-justification. But how do we? 
as believers who have trusted in Christ, defeat covetousness? One, well, number one, evaluate your values. What is it that we really desire? We, we've considered Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, where, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, we began this year with the theme of investing for eternity. And we considered that what we treasure, we're going to pursue and we're going to prioritize. What, what we seek first is it the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Are we desiring to grow in Christ-likeness? The, the Bible does not disparage earthly things. God has given us things to enjoy. But it does make it clear that they're temporary. They decay, they fade, they break, they get stolen. Don't tie your heart to that which is temporal. Analyze your calendar, your checkbook, your conversation. That will reveal where your heart is. You know, where do we spend our time what, what do we sacrifice on our calendar? Where do we put our money? And, and what is the focus of our conversation? You know, a covetous person will continually talk about secular things because his voice is not in tune to heaven and that which is eternal. You know, our anxieties also reveal our priorities because we don't worry about what we don't care about. And money is a wonderful tool but it's a terrible master. It's a great tool if you have the right master. And that's why it's a blessing to have a giving church because it, it gives us that opportunity of advancing the cause of Christ and investing for eternity by investing in people who are going there. But do we value Christ-likeness? Seek first His righteousness. Secondly, we need to fight the idolatrous heart of covetousness. It is a spiritual battle. Therefore, put to death the members which you are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This, this is a war because there is an entire industry in our country that is set up to make us discontent. It's the advertising industry. You know, your life would just be better if you drove that car instead of what you have. If you had a different wardrobe, if you had that new iPhone, you know, maybe if you had a different deodorant, that different scent would make all the difference. Now, deodorant might make a difference. <laughs> or, or, you know, if you had a different toothpaste, you know, they had a color in it and it felt like sand in your mouth, then your life would be so much better. It's your toothpaste that's the problem. You know, isn't this what our culture... And they spend a lot of money on that. Now, obviously, we should take practical steps for health and hygiene. But we have to guard against the dissatisfaction that our, that our culture tries to foment within us. Because God has provided. Therefore, the third thing is cultivate contentment. Contentment is a positive, is a positive side of the prohibition against coveting. Philippians 4. Not that I speak, as Paul is summing up this letter to the church at Philippi, he says, not that I speak with re regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of verse 13. It's not about sports events. 
that I can do everything through Christ. We can win this game through Christ. No, it's I'm doing all to the glory of God. Paul said, I've had the ups and downs of life. Things have gone well and I've struggled. And I understand that godliness with contentment is great gain. That's back in 1 Timothy. And so he says, I can do all things. I can live humbly or in prosperity. I can experience hunger or I can be full. I can have abundance or I can suffer need. And I can do it through Christ because he strengthens me and he satisfies. Do you realize that if God wanted you to have more right now, you would have it? Now, obviously, if we're in a bind because of our choices, we need to own that and learn from it. But even then, God's allowed it. And he'll use it for our good and his glory to mature us into Christ-likeness. So covetousness is a lack of satisfaction with some aspect of our life. Anything that is our neighbor's. And it may not be possessions. It may be his abilities, his looks, his position, his family background. But earlier in Philippians 4, Paul had told the the people, rejoice in the Lord always. And that brings us to the fourth one. Develop an attitude of gratitude. Rejoice in the Lord always and in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. Or as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, in everything give thanks for this is God's will. In Christ Jesus for you. Contentment really means wanting what God wants for you more than what you want for you. We have a, all have things we want. But am I willing to say, but I'm satisfied, Lord, with what you do? Covetous people are not thankful people. They don't, they don't have a heart of gratitude. The fifth thing is love your neighbor. And we've talked about this, and that's really where Jesus went in using this commandment as he directed it to that man who came to him asking, what do I have to do for eternal life? Romans 13, verses 9 and 10 say, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is the culmination of the commandments. Because if you love your neighbor, you won't covet what is his. A covetous person loves stuff. A contented person loves people. Which are you? And then finally, find your contentment in Christ. That he is enough. Hebrews 13, 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The law was the tutor to guide people to Christ. He's the one who justifies and he's the one who satisfies. So the question is, are you satisfied with him? Are you content to know that he will not leave you hanging? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Trusting Jesus is the only thing that really matters. And it matters not for just now, but for eternity. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Because he really is always enough. The rich young ruler loved his stuff more than he loved the Savior. He wasn't convinced that following Jesus could truly satisfy 
And so he turned and walked away, sorrowful. What do you think he thinks today? Are you satisfied with Jesus? When you have trusted the Lord, his presence and provision provide your contentment. And as we keep our focus on him, as we invest for eternity, we can have that heart of contentment that is displayed in a heart of gratitude. Is that your heart today? It can be if you have trusted Christ. Let's pray together.